right. As we um, look into the Word, can you uh, look the person next to you and say, I'm glad to see you. It's good to see you today. It is uh, good to see you. It really, uh, really and truly is. I know that last week uh, some of you were traveling uh, for the Memorial Day weekend. Uh, some of y'all were out of town and were not able to make it. Uh, we most certainly did miss you. Uh, we missed your presence being with us. Uh, we thank you for being here today. If you are a guest from out of town, uh, you're just kind of popping in here. Uh, we're so thankful that you could be here. Uh, we fully trust that God is going to work in your hearts today and that uh, you're going to experience the Lord through our time. We have been going through uh, the book of Nehemiah, and we've gotten to this point where we're in chapter 9. We're going to go chapter 9 and 10 today. But last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8, which is uh, pretty huge uh, as it relates to the work that God is doing amongst his people. Uh, for those of you who are not here, you're regular with us, um, hopefully you could listen to it if you have not already. But what Nehemiah 8 in a nutshell was saying was, um, we finished rebuilding the walls around the city, but what we need to do is now rebuild the hearts of the people. And what Nehemiah was saying is, for all of the great things that you can do, you can go on all kinds of different projects, you can uh, cook food for people, you can read a lot of good Christian books, you can do a bunch of different things. But if you really want to be spiritually rebuilt, the only way that's going to happen, the only way it's going to happen is through the Word of God. Right? The Word of God is the means by which a people will be rebuilt and our spiritual lives are going to be renewed and restored. So how does that happen? What, what Nehemiah is saying is not unique to his own book. In Romans 10, 17, Paul the Apostle says, faith comes from hearing the Word of God. The Word of God is what gives you faith. It's what builds your faith. It's what builds your life. How does that happen, though? Because there are a lot of people who come to churches in not only America but throughout the world. Every Sunday they come and they hear the Word of God. They've been doing it for a year, two years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, but there's still no faith in them, and there's still no rebuilding within their spiritual lives, whereas other people could hear it one time and their lives are completely changed. Why is that? Why is it that a few weeks ago someone was walking out of our worship service and as they were saying bye, they said, thanks for sharing, uh, for preaching the word today. I think today what you shared was a life changer. But out of the other people who are here at the service, no one else walked out of service and said that. And so my response was, hey, you know why it was life changing for you? Because your heart is in a good place to receive that. He said, what? I said, yeah, not everyone says that. The same word was spoken, but your heart is in a place, maybe it's your heart, maybe it's your life situation, where you, you're uniquely able to take that word which was spoken, and it would be a life changer for you. It's not for everybody else. Maybe it's, it's not as applicable to them, or maybe their hearts are not in the right place. Here's what he's saying. Here's, here's the deal. This is something that my, uh, my, one of my first preaching professors said many years ago. He said, the difference between a good sermon, okay, the difference between a good sermon and a bad sermon is the responsibility of the pastor, the preacher. Okay? It's up to me to bring today a good sermon as opposed to a bad one. Okay? That's, that's my responsibility. That's my calling. But the difference between a good sermon and a great sermon is not me, it's you. <laughs> so before you think, Sit back and say, hey, you know what? This guy better bring it today. Hey, that's only half the job. My job is only half of it. The difference between good and great is you and what you do and how you receive it and how you respond to the word of God. 
you know that you need to prepare well in order to receive the Word of God. You need to pull out weeds in order that you can plant in seeds. You know that uh, to have a great sermon at the end, you've got to start before we start. That means what do you do on Saturday night? That changes the way you worship, the way you uh, receive the Word of God. That means what you do on Sunday morning and how you prepare for it is going to dictate how well you receive the Word of God. It's important how you receive the Word of God and what you do before, but in order to rebuild the spiritual life, I would venture to say that it is even more important what you do after you hear the Word of God, how you respond to the Word of God, that's going to make a difference whether faith is formed in your heart, whether your heart is rebuilt, whether your spiritual life is rebuilt or not. The difference between a good and bad sermon is me. The difference between a good and great sermon is you. The Word of God was spoken over the people of Nehemiah's day, and they responded in a way that their lives would be rebuilt. And so today, I want to ask the question, how do we respond to God's word in order that spiritual rebuilding and faith would be formed in the lives of the people who hear? This is what we're going to do today. Nehemiah chapter 9 comes right after Nehemiah chapter 8, and in chapter 8, for the first time in years, the people of God hear the word of God. Can you imagine that? If you have not, you're, you're used to going to church, used to hearing the Word of God, and then next 10, 15, 20 years of your life, uh, there was a void of God's Word. Not because you didn't seek it or you didn't want it, but because it was gone. It was not written in your language. It, uh, all the Bibles and all the iPhones and all the apps, all the Bible passages were wiped out from the face of the earth for 20 years, 30 years. The first time they hear the word of God in all of these years was in chapter 8, and it says they began to weep, and they began to confess their sins before the Lord God. Three weeks pass, three weeks and three days, and then in chapter 9, they hear the word of God again uh, after 24 days. And this is what it says, chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to go through 9 and 10 today. Uh, it's a long, long passage, so we're not going to read it all, but I want to read verses 1 through 3 right now. And I'll give you some thoughts, and then we're going to kind of walk through some of the other passage, uh, verses in the Scripture. On the 24th day of the seventh month, the same month that's connecting with chapter 8, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. This is a sign of mourning. Uh, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So what do you see happening here? They've, they've read the word. They had the Feast of Tabernacles. They had all kinds of joy, and then they go into a period of mourning, Day of Atonement, all of this stuff. They, they begin to mourn over their sins. It, it, it says that for a quarter of the day, they spent reading from the book of the law of the Lord their God. So for six hours, six hours they're hearing from the word of God. The response to the word of God, for six hours they begin confessing their sins and they begin worshiping God. What do you see about the response of the people of God to the hearing of the Word of God. Three thoughts here. The first thing is that conviction should lead to confession. Okay, conviction in your heart through the Word of God should lead to confession. 
They hear the word of God. They receive the word of God. And then it says, starting in, in, in verse 4, in verses 4 and 5, it kind of paints this picture of the assembly of the Israelites. And then you've got two stairs on either side and a bunch of Levites. These are the priests. These are the kind of the pastors of the day. Half of them stand on one side. The other half stand on the other side. And they start calling to each other, leading the people of God in reading the word of God, in confessing, in worship, and in prayer. So it's kind of this call and response. You see this sometimes in African-American churches when uh, the pastor says, God is good, and the people respond all the time. says, all the time, God is good. Praise the Lord. Amen, amen, praise the Lord, and all these things. And it's just kind of going back and forth. And so in the assembly of all of the gathered saints of Israel, there's this back and forth that's happening. And then in chapter, uh, in chapter 9, verse 5, verse 6, it begins, and for the next uh, 30 verses, it talks about the prayer that was prayed and what they're shouting back and forth to each other. And the basic format goes like one side shouting the faithfulness of God, the other side, as they recount the history of Israel, talks about the failures of the people of God. So you've got the faithfulness of God and the failures of the people. The faithfulness of God and the failures of the people. Faithfulness of God, the failures of the people. And in response to that history lesson, the people of God begin to worship and they begin to confess their sins before the Lord their God. And for 33 verses, this happens. And then here's a summary, a couple summary statements uh, in, in verse 33 of chapter 9. It says, In all that has happened to us, you've been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. And, and so they begin to realize, in the midst of all our lives, you have been so, so good to us. You have relentlessly pursued us. You have chased after us but we have failed you. And this conviction in their hearts begins to lead them to confessing their sins. You know, it's uh, a common thing in, in our home with three kids where um, one of the kids will come running up to Olivia or me and they'll say, hey, uh, my brother, my sister is, is bothering me. They're taking my, my food or they keep taking the remote control from the TV or uh, they push me off the computer or whatever it is. And so we'll say to the offending party, we'll say, hey, listen, if uh, you keep doing that, then there's going to be a consequence. Okay? We have a consequence structure. The first thing is uh, they, maybe they'll do a timeout. The second thing is they'll lose their treats. If they get ice cream that day, they'll lose that. Uh, if they... Um, if they have a TV show that day to watch, um, then we'll say, you don't get a TV show today or whatever it might be. And then if it gets really bad, then we have to um, give them a little discipline with the rod. And so, um, don't do that. Stop it. But they keep on doing it. They keep on doing it. Hey, listen, if you do this and you're not going to watch your show today, and they keep on doing it. They keep on badgering. They keep on pestering. They keep on bothering. And so, we say, okay, um, you've lost your show today. That's the consequence. The typical response of a child, of a well-behaved, they understand it, they get it, child should be, I'm sorry, I did wrong. I'm sorry. But the response of our children sometimes is they start crying and they say, no, mommy, you're so mean. Daddy, you're so mean. You are bad. You are a bad mom. You are a bad daddy. And we say to them, Why? You chose this. We gave you a choice. If you repent, then we relent from sending the consequences of your actions. But if you keep on doing it, then there is a consequence. You need to deal with that. 
What do you do? What do you do? When as a result of your actions, there are consequences that follow as a result. What do the Israelites do? They realize, well, you know what? In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. A lot of times, we don't respond in this way. A lot of times, we respond in ways that get angry at God, don't we? God, this is messed up. My life is jacked up. I don't know why you're doing this to me. We act as if God owes us something. God, why is my family in, 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 so messed up? And why do I, of all people, have the worst family in the world? Well, maybe it's because you lie to your parents all the time and you cuss at them and you do things behind their back and what you're getting is what you deserve because of your actions. Not all the time. But a lot of times we miss out on that. God, oh, this is terrible. Why didn't I get into the, the college that I wanted to get into? And then he'll say to you, why didn't you go to class when you're supposed to go to class? Like we shake our fist at God as if God is always in the wrong, that we deserve something, that God, uh, we're entitled to certain things because God is our father. But we act more as if God is a sugar daddy than he is our father. God, why am I in jail? This is terrible. I, I love you. I'm a child of God. I shouldn't be in jail. Then why would you break the law? There are natural consequences to our actions, and the people of God are getting it here. They understand it. They say the same thing in verse 37. Because of our sins, the abundant harvest that should have been ours, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. And here is the tragic result. We are in great distress. Is any of you in great distress, your marriage in great distress today, your family, like your, your work life, your social life, your life in general? It's not always because of sin, but it's not always because God is trying to withhold. In fact, it's not because every intention, okay, understand this, every intention of the heart of God is for your good if you're his child. Did you know that? Everything that happens in your life passes first through nail-pierced hands that love you, and every intention of his heart for you, if you're his child, is for your good because he works everything together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. However, what the Israelites understand is if I want God's best for my life, then I need to give, God's I need to give God my best to him as it plays out in my life. The Israelites understand that, but they only understand it because they've gotten into the Word of God, and they begin to see that the Word of God is a mirror to our souls. You, uh, we, we overestimate our moral goodness and our spirituality, but when we come before the Word of God and the Word of God becomes a mirror to our souls, that's when we begin to realize, holy cow, my relationships that are falling apart is not just because of, of, of their wrong against me, but I've done wrong against them. Isn't that why you come into worship service on Sunday mornings and, and um, I, I don't know, you've got this, uh, you feel like, ah, oh, you know what, this person in my life, I really don't like them. Maybe it's your, your, your boyfriend or girlfriend, it's your spouse, it's your parent, it's your child, it's a teacher, a boss, a coworker. You really don't like them. And then you come in and you hear the word of God and all of a sudden you realize the mirror's turned inward to you. It's not all their fault. But I did something to breach that relationship also. Like I've done something and I need to be responsible. If there's conviction in your heart through the word of God, then there has to be convic confession. 
That's the, that's the next step is we begin to agree with God that what you say is sin in my life, I agree with that and I bring that out before you because it's easy for us to overestimate our goodness and our moral superiority over those who we think wrong us. But when we see the word of God, we begin to realize the poverty of our so-called greatness in our spirituality. Begin to realize, man, God, I'm broken and I need a savior. I need you. Several years ago, one of our uh, first mission trips, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this, but one of our first mission trips when we went down to the Dominican Republic, we had a, a group of people, um, mostly um, youth students, high school students, and then maybe like a, a few college and single folks went as well. But um, we were, um, long story short, we we're, were out in a bunch of groups doing outreach, and we came back into the church, and uh, the church had no air conditioning, and it was hot. Um, and we're waiting for other groups to come back. And the pastor of the church said, yeah, we want to uh, be able to evaluate and debrief and figure out how we can do this best next time. So we're going to wait for all the groups to come back, and then we're going to talk about how the time went. And so as a um, group started coming back, uh, there were a couple groups that had to go further out, and so it took them a lot longer to come in. And so there were some of our folks who were uh, getting hot, and they were getting tired and antsy. And so they said, hey, um, do you think we could go back to our rooms right now and, and, and rest and I tell them, no, we got we to gotta stay as a team. we got to stay as a unit, so why don't you just stay here? Um, the other groups will be back, and then we're, we're going to eat lunch. And so they said, okay. Um, and then we, we were just kind of hanging out, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then it started to rain. It started to rain, and in midst of, like, 90-degree weather and 90% humidity, like, rain is awesome. Like, rain is awesome in that place. And so it started raining. And there's a secret place. Maybe some of y'all who are going to the Dominican Republic next week will, will, will find it. But behind the church building, there's a place where the roof comes down and, and it comes to a point where when it rains, all this water collects and then it comes down like a, like a shower, like a waterfall. And a lot of people think it's the greatest place in the, in the DR to go and, and to bring your Dr. Bronner's peppermint washer to get your soap and shampoo and your bathing suit on and go out there and start washing. And so there are three high schoolers on, our, uh, on that particular trip who decided it would be a good idea for them to do that. And so um, they kind of snuck out of the sanctuary, went to their rooms. I think they, they changed into their bathing suits or something, but they came, and uh, as it was raining, they went into that, that waterfall, and they started having a grand old time, and they were loving life, and uh, the rest of the people in the, in the church were miserable, um, but they were having their fun. They're laughing, and they're giggling, and it was the funniest thing because they said things like, those people in there are missing out. <laughs> They're missing out. And then they started laughing and they started giggling. I can imagine they're splashing water on each other and whatever it was they were doing, putting water in their mouth and spitting it at each other. Those are the kind of guys that they were. But um, they were having a good old time. But the tragic thing about all of this is that with the windows of the church open and the proximity and the way that their voices echoed, Everything that they were saying was being broadcast into the church building, and everyone who was inside was listening. And the anger level was rising as we realized how much fun they were having while we were waiting inside here. They were laughing, and they sounded like little girls, and they were clapping, and oh, this is so fun. And so after that all ended, I went to those three people, and I said, hey, guys, Let's talk about what happened. I said something like, I think we need to have a talk. And so they said, okay. So we sat down and I said, what do you think I want to talk to you about? <laughs> and they said, uh, because we left the sanctuary uh, and did our own thing. I said, yeah, that is what you did. 
Not only did you do that, but you made it known to everybody what you were doing. And you were laughing and you were giggling, and it was embarrassing. Right? It was embarrassing for me as I sat there and <laughs> listened to you giggle like that. I've never heard you giggle like that, uh, and I felt very awkward. It was embarrassing to our church. It was embarrassing to you, uh, and it was sad. I wasn't smiling as I said it. Um, I was trying to be as, as, <laughs> as serious as I could. And I said, here's what I want you to do. We're going to eat lunch. Uh, and the rest of us were sitting like this, and, and there were th- uh, some tables back there. I said, you guys wait while the rest of us eat lunch. I want you guys to sit back there, and I want you to think about what your punishment ought to be. What should your consequence be? And I walked away, and they sat and they talked about it. And then uh, I went back and joined the rest of the group, tried to stop, not smile and not laugh, but it was kind of, you know, it was a little bit funny to me. And then... I went back and I was like, all right, you guys talk about it. what do you think? What do you think, you, uh, what do you think your punishment ought to be? And they said, you know, at the end of the trip, we're going to go uh, shopping for souvenirs. Um, I think it will be a good punishment for us. Um, we'll just stay here and, and do something here at the church. <laughs> um, I realized that shopping for souvenirs is not the number one thing on most guys' list of things to do. So I said, no, I've got a better idea. Um, after we go shopping, we're going to go to the beach and... Um, why don't you guys go shopping, and then after you go shopping, while the rest of the people are at the beach, why don't you go back to the church? Because they need to have their fun in the water, and you've already had your fun in the water. So why don't we, why don't we have that? And then I walked away. And as I was walking away, one of the guys, um, he said, guys, we really messed up. <laughs> the guys, we really messed up. And I walked back, and I, I, I wanted them to, to, to think about that for a little bit. It was never my desire that they would actually miss out on the beach and and, and not have that, but I wanted them to feel for a moment so that their response would be, yeah, you know what, guys? We messed up. We shouldn't do that. The response of the Israelites in hearing all of these things is, guys, we really messed up. God, we messed up. When you hear the word of God, how does our spiritual life get rebuilt? So when there's conviction in your heart and you feel God speaking to your heart, let that conviction lead you to confession. This is the first step. The first thing we see is that conviction should lead to confession. But that's not the only thing. Confession is huge and that's important. And as we come to the table, we're going to confess. But the second thing that we have to do, we have to realize, is that repentance puts confession into action. Hey, not just, oh, yeah, I messed up. You know, there are some people who get together with their, uh, with their friends and they have accountability and they share together, and that becomes not much more than a confession session where conviction of their wrong leads them to confess. And so what ends up happening? This is what an accountability group looks like. Hey, I suck, I failed. Yeah, me too, I suck, I failed. Yeah, we both suck, let's suck together. And so they have this terror, that's it. But repentance takes that confession and it moves it into action. Not just, dude, we stink, but what can we do? We need to change. We need to turn away from that sin and we need to move towards Jesus. I was talking with my, uh, a friend of mine about uh, three, four weeks ago. Uh, he's calling me from, from out of state. He was in this relationship that he thought it was going to end up in marriage, but it ended up not. 
Uh, we'd been talking through the length, and he said, you know, I think it could go all the way. I don't think it could go all the way. We're having some doubts. I think it can work. I think we can make it work. Um, but he, he was so busy with his, with his work and with all the things that he was doing that um, it, it just kind of uh, deteriorated from a certain place. And so he, he called me up, and he's like, hey, um, I really need, I need prayer because I think it's done. So I, I'm asking him what happened and, and how did it go and is it fixable. And, and basically he said, you know, a few months ago, um, my girlfriend said to me, um, I think you should go see a counselor and get help for, your, uh, for, for whatever the issues are in your heart. He said, if you do that, then, then maybe this can work out. And he got so busy with work and got so busy doing the things that he needed to do to take care of, uh, of what he was doing uh, that he never got around to it. And so she gave this ultimatum and said, I think it's, it's done. And at which point he said, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll make an appointment right now to see a counselor. I'll do whatever. He's like, I know that I haven't been who you wanted me to be. I know I haven't kept up my end of the bargain. But whatever, whatever, whatever I can do, whatever I can do, because this relationship means a lot to me, I want it to work out. I want it to work. Whatever you say, um, I'm willing to do. Because he was moving confession from merely inside of his heart into action. But by that point, sadly for him, it was too late. The Israelites are saying, God, we don't want to just confess these things. We want to put it into action. We want to do something about it. And so it says in chapter 9, verse 38, after they pray this prayer, it says, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, a covenant, a vow, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Chapter 10, verse 1, those who sealed it were these people, and it talks about all of the people who went on to sign this covenant. What are they doing? They're saying, God, we, the word of God has shown us how we failed. The word of God has shown us how it has convicted our hearts. We confess these things before you, but we want to take this into action. How do you change? How do you get rebuilt through the word of God? Not by you simply understanding, oh my gosh, you know what? I stink. You stink. We all stink. Yay, we stink. It's about taking that and moving it into action. And so they make a vow here. They say, we're making a commitment in the presence of God and all of these other people. We're making a vow. My life will always honor you, whether I live or die. That's what they're saying. Why do they make this vow? In other places in Ecclesiastes, it says, don't be quick to make a vow. Let my words be few in the presence of God. But they make this vow, knowing that they're going to break it. Why do they do it? And why do we make vows? Why do we make commitments knowing that we're going to break them? Because we know that from where I am right now, convicted of my sin, I confess my sin of all of these things, when I make a commitment and I live that out, from then until the next time I need to renew my commitment, there will be growth and there will be change in my life. So we make a commitment, we make a vow, we renew the covenant. Why? Because it turns that which is abstract and it makes it concrete. Takes that which is general, and it makes it specific. And so they say, we're going to make this concrete. This is how we need to live this out. What are the ways that God has been convicting your heart as we've gone through Nehemiah that you need to make changes in your life? Last week, we heard that the only way your life is going to be rebuilt is through the Word of God, and several people said, yeah, hey, I want to get into the Word of God. Can I tell you something, though? You and I will never get serious with God unless we start getting specific with God. A broad and general application is never going to lead to life change. 
Hey, so, okay, great. You heard the message last week. What are you going to do? I'm going to read the Bible more. That doesn't mean anything. Like, what does that mean at a tangible, practical, measurable level? Uh, I need to pray more. Yeah, I need to pray more. I'm going to pray more. That's my New Year's resolution. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean, here's what I need to do. I need to lose weight. Yeah, we all need to get healthy, but what does that look like? It means I'm going to be like some of our people, and I'm going to go to the gym three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Unless we get specific with God, we're not going to get serious with God. And a lot of times, you ask your spouse, hey, yeah, you know what? We've been married for 10 years now. Let's have a covenant renewal ceremony. Okay, let's do that. After 10 years of, of all of these things, here's my pledge to you. I will love you till my dying day. I'm going to love you better. I'm going to love you more. I'm going to love you with all of my heart. That's great. But he or she is going to want to know, how are you going to love me? Show me, tell me how you're going to love me. Tell me that you're going to take me out on a date every Thursday night. Tell me that you're going to sit me down and we're going to pray together every Wednesday night after prayer meeting and we're going to pray and we're going to have a confession time and we're going to love each other uh, through prayer. Tell me what that looks like. That every year, On our anniversary, we're going to go out to this one particular place, and I'm not going to forget it. I'm going to make a plan, and we're going to get to this place, and whatever whatever it looks like. But the reason we don't ever get serious is because we don't get specific. Just let things go. General surrender to God. There are three ways that they get very specific here. Okay, very specific, and I venture to say that the reason they got very specific about these three areas is because they're areas that we all need to get very specific about. In chapter 10, verse 30, it says, We promise not to give our daughters to marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. They're saying we're not going to marry, intermarry with other races. He's not talking, in that context, he's not talking about don't have interracial marriages inter-ethnic marriage. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying don't marry with people outside of your religion because the only people that worshipped the God that we worship were the Israelites. Everyone else worshipped false gods, and so when they would marry, this is what would happen at a marriage ceremony, you would bring the symbols of your religion. If it was another god, if it was idolatry, they would bring these idols, and, in, and when they would marry, they would hoist these up in prominent places within their homes. And they would say, these are our gods. Some gods, like the god of Moloch, demanded child sacrifices. And so you marry somebody who worships that god, so-called god, then this is how you build your life. You sacrifice your children. And so God is saying, it, we'll see this in Nehemiah 13 too. It says, King Solomon, heart devoted to God, but he started going astray when he started marrying foreign women who worship foreign gods who are not the God of our forefathers. See this throughout the history of Israel. Whenever there was moral or spiritual decay, it was because they were dancing with the devil with neighboring countries, and especially it snared them in their romantic relationships. Your romantic relationship, are you tempted to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't follow Jesus? Not only Nehemiah, 10, Nehemiah 13, 2 Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. If your desire is to be with someone who does not prize Christ in their lives, then the most probable reason is because deep in our hearts, you do not prize Christ in your life. Come on, let's be serious. 
your romantic relationship, it's the first place these guys are saying, we need to commit that to God. If your marriage is falling apart, you need to commit that to God. If your relationship with your boyfriend, girlfriend, your social relationships, we need to commit them to God. That's the first place, he says, these need to be sanctified and given over to God. The second thing he says in verse 31, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. It basically talks about honoring the Sabbath. The only country in all of the world that had a Sabbath was Israel. And the whole purpose was that other nations would look at Israel and say, man, there's something different about them. Why are they like that? It's why Chick-fil-A doesn't open on Sunday. Doesn't, how many times have you wanted to eat Chick-fil-A and it happened to be on Sunday? And you're like, curses. No, not curses, blessing. But why, why? Because Chick-fil-A, everyone looks at Chick-fil-A and they say they're different. And you ask their founder, Truett Cathy, because we want to give our workers a day that they could worship, rest, and be with their loved ones. People look at Chick-fil-A and they say, man, there's something different. I, my, uh, one of my friends in college, his name was Q, he went down to uh, one of their, their, their offices, one of their regional offices when, uh, back in the early 2000s accountant doing an audit for them, and he said in their offices, kids were running around. There was like a family-friendly zone, and so kids were running around in the office spaces. They would, um, obviously, they don't open on Sundays. They ran the numbers, and their conclusion was, man, if Chick-fil-A ran their fast food business like McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, BMW, Burger King, McDonald's, and like any of the other fast food restaurants, they would easily be number one. But they were willing to sacrifice profits for the sake of principle. Are you willing to give up working on Sunday in order that you might consecrate that? If you're a student, are you willing to not study on Sundays? Here's what that means. That means you work harder Friday and Saturday so that you don't need to do that on Sunday. So that you could trust, and this is what they needed to trust, that even if I'm not working, that God is still working. He's working in my life, and I can trust him with it. Again, I, I say that in general. Some of us can't do that. If you work at a hospital, you can't do that. If you work in a job that requires you, you can't do that. Um, yeah, it's not a blanket state, but it's a general principle. It's a general principle that we find those days where we can do that and consecrate our work life to the Lord God. <clears throat> Starting in, in, in 32 until, the, uh, until verse 36, 37, 38, um, he talks about the tithe. It's a litmus test for many of us. One of the last things to get surrendered and converted to Jesus is our bank account, it's our wallet. But they're saying, God, I can trust that the God of the heavens who gave me everything I have, the God of the heavens can do more with 90% that I give to you than I can do with 100% of my money. That you can make 90% go a lot further than I can stretch my 100%. Boy, I, there has never been, uh, I cannot think of many places in my spiritual life, in my relationship with God, where I've seen God show up time and time again than in this area. Just constantly giving God the first fruit as a sign that, God, I, I, this is all yours. And over and over and over again for the past, ever since I was 17 years old, making 4.25 at Chuck E. Cheese, giving that, that first fruit to God, 
never failed to take care of me, my family, my loved ones. Relationships, romantic, marriage, social relationships, your work and school life, your giving, your 10%, your finances to God. This is where spirituality is put to the test. That's what it was for them. I would imagine for a lot of us, it is for us as well. But what are the other places in your life that you feel like God is challenging you and convicting you about? What are the places in your life where you need to turn that abstract, I will build my life upon your love, I will trust you into something specific? Here's how I'm going to trust you, God. Because if you do, we're on the way to rebuilding our spiritual lives. That's the second thing that we see. Last thing that we see is that your response Your response, however you respond, I'm going to follow you, God. I'm going to give my tithe. I'm going to give my Sabbath. I'm going to give my relationships up to you, whatever it is. God, heal my marriage, heal my friendships, heal my relationships. Your response is a reflection of God's grace, not your greatness, not a reflection of your greatness. You ever made a commitment to God to do something? Like, I'm going to do this 21-day Daniel fast. Or I'm going to read the Word of God of five chapters every day. Or I'm going to go on this mission trip. Or I'm going to fast for uh, three days. When you fast, what drives that? What motivates that? What is in view of your sight as you make that kind of a commitment? Is it, man, you know what? I'm, I'm a great Christian. Maybe God will see how great a Christian I am and maybe he'll love me because I do these things. Maybe he'll finally bless my life and give me what I'm asking for, that wife, that husband, that whatever it is. Maybe he'll give that to me if I do this and he sees how strong and how awesome I can be. Think of some of the other vows that have been made. I think of a marriage vow. I think of a marriage that, a wedding that I officiated some time ago and the counseling, as I was doing counseling, I said, I said to the, to the uh, young man who's getting married, I said, hey, can you tell me, when did you know that she was the one that you wanted to marry? And he said, well, you know, uh, I got a broken relationship with my parents and all of these things. Are not, there's a lot of things not right in my life. There's a lot of baggage and brokenness. And he said, one time, um, he said, this is how I knew. He said, one time, she saw me at my worst, and she loved me still. That's when I knew that she was the one. At the end of the day, in, in every relationship, in every relationship within this place, you pick any relationship, um, our desire isn't that we could see the greatness of each other, our gifts, our skills, our talent, our beauty, and love them for the greatness in it. Here's our deepest desire relationally, is that they would see our deepest failure and pain and brokenness and shame, and that they would still love us for that. That's what we want. We front a lot. We put on masks a lot. But at the end of the day, this is what we want. Someone to see the real me and to love me for that. This young man was saying, when she saw me in that place, I knew that she was the one. And so on that wedding day, when they stood before each other and they looked at each other and they held hands and they recited those ancient vows that I will be faithful to you for better or for worse in sickness and in health, rich or poor, till death, death, death do us part. 
He wasn't saying, lady, I'm saying this because I'm the man and I will be faithful to you. I'm going to kill it in this marriage. I'm going to be awesome for you. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't boasting of his greatness. He was reflecting her grace. Because of your beauty, because of your grace, because of your love, I will give my life for you to honor that. When you make a decision as you walk out of here to follow Christ, what motivates that? What are you seeing? The Israelites say, we will give our lives to you. What are they seeing? Here's what they see in chapter 9, verse 38. In view of all this, we're making a binding agreement. In view of all what? What are they seeing? They're seeing everything that these Levites were shouting back and forth to each other. What is it? Let me tell you. If I can just walk through real quick, I'm going to just walk through some of the stuff that happens. In chapter 9, in this prayer, as they walk down memory lane, recounting the history of the people of God, okay? This is what they said. They say, God, you made the heavens. Verse 6, you give life to everything. Verse 7, you are the God who chose Abraham. He found, started this whole thing. Verse 8, you made a covenant with him to give him the land. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. Verse 9, God, you saw the suffering of our forefathers. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs in verse 10. Verse 11, you divided the sea before them. Verse 14, verse 15, in their hunger, you gave them bread. In other words, they're saying, God, you have been so good to us. Everything that we've needed, you've given. You have been so very good to us. Verse 16, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. Verse 17, they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Verse 19, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon those fools in the desert. He should have, right? You did not abandon them. Verse 20, you did not withhold your manna from them, though they complained. Verse 21, for 40 years you sustained them. They lacked nothing. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms. Verse 23, you made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky. Verse 24, you subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. Verse 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets. Verse 27, but when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them. Verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your eyes. At the end of verse 28, and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. Verse 29, you warned them. But they became arrogant. They sinned. Verse 31, but in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 38, in view of all this, we give our lives to you. Do you understand that when we offer our lives to God, it's not because we want people to see how great we are. We want God to see how great you are. Maybe now you're going to love me. Maybe now you're going to accept me. 
It's always in view of God's mercy in our lives. And that's why we plead, as we will later today, we plead with God, may I never lose the wonder, oh, the wonder of your mercy. Guys, as soon as we lose sight of mercy, that we lose our motivation. And the wheels in which we're going on this journey get punctured with flat tires, and we realize, man, I don't want to go anymore. But in view of God's mercy, Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. When you constantly have Christ in view, then you walk out of here, and as soon as you walk out that door, you begin to fly on wings of grace. It's the gospel that does that for you. That's why when you come in here every Sunday, I I don't know how the message is going to be, but one thing that we can tell you is that at the end of every message, you will be led to Jesus. Because you don't need to see the greatness of a man or woman or your own greatness. At the end of it all, you need to see Jesus. How is it that God could continue to, after year after year, time after time, overlook in his patience the faithlessness of the people? The easy answer is that he couldn't. And so 500 years later, his son would stand in a crowded room with 12 people, some of them who had made this vow, even if everyone else leaves you, I will never leave you. Even that very night, he would leave them. They would leave him. But before that could happen, his last meal that he would share with his disciples, the Gospel of Mark says, for hundreds of years, the people of God broke covenant. But Jesus says, here, through my body and my blood, I will introduce a new covenant. Not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. That you don't do it in order to be accepted. Because you're accepted by grace, you live in obedience to Jesus. This is the gospel of Christ, and this is why we obey him. This is how our lives get rebuilt, because we hear the word of God. We're convicted of it. We confess. We put that into action. God, here I am, driven not by our aspiration to greatness spiritually, but in realizing that I come with nothing in my hands, and I come to the word of God, and I leave with everything in me so that I can live for the glory of God. This is how people are rebuilt. This is how you're rebuilt. Happens every Sunday. Happens every time you get into the word of God. So let's come empty-handed and let's leave with hands full of the grace of God. Let's pray together. So as we uh, come now to this point in time, what we do now is a difference between rebuilding and simply hearing. What we do now is a place where we come, that place between faith being built to an opportunity that we let go. Jesus is here with us. His spirit is here with us right now. Yeah. So if there's been conviction in your heart, Let's begin to confess. Let's not stop at confession. Let's move towards repentance. Confession is agreeing. But we only need a mind in order to do that. Repentance means we grieve our sin. 
God, whatever I can do, whatever I need to do, I turn away from sin. I turn to you that I might follow you. Let's repent for specific sins specifically in order that we might repent and turn specifically back towards God and make some commitments to follow Jesus. Okay, let's do that. Driven by grace, captured by grace. Spend a few moments doing that right now, and then we'll continue uh, to respond to his word. trusted God with your finances? Have you trusted God with your school, your work, your future? Have you trusted God with your relationships? Are you willing to pray about it? Do you trust that God's goodness is such that if you do pray about it, that he will give you what is best? Even if it's not what you planned, that means you need to change your mind about something that you're about to do. Would you pray? Commit that to the Lord? We're going to come to this table of God's amazing grace where time and time again, God has showed his love and mercy and favor. In light of that, leads us to say, God, remove from me all that is hindering my love for you. What are those things? Can we spend a couple minutes praying quietly in our hearts? taking inventory of our sin list, surrendering them before the Lord that he might bury them in the sea of forgetfulness because of the blood that was shed for you and me on the cross. Let's do that for a couple minutes before we come to this table.